Remember where we are as we come to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel has broken the king's law. Uh, The decree declared that no one in Babylon should pray to any man or any god other than King Darius for a period of 30 days. And yet, Daniel continued his practice of praying to the true God every morning, afternoon, or at noon, and evening. And so Daniel is now a criminal. Daniel is now a lawbreaker. Uh, He's not a criminal because he wanted to be one. He was put into this position by an unjust law, but nevertheless, he is now a criminal. He's been caught in the act, and his sentence is death by lion. Or more precisely, his sentence is that he be cast into the king's den of lions. So we're going to pick up this evening in verse 14 and work our way through the end of this chapter. And as we do so, I've tried to be a good Baptist preacher, and I've tried to give you an outline headings with alliteration. So here we go. Our outline, very simple. First, Darius's distress in verses 14 through 18. Daniel's deliverance in verses 19 through 24. And then Darius's decree in verses 25 through 28. So Darius's distress, Daniel's deliverance, and then Darius's decree. And I pray that God will meet with us and do supernatural things among us as we read this together. So let's pick it up. Verse 14, uh, Daniel chapter 6, verse 14. Well, then the king, when he heard these words, namely about Daniel being caught praying in violation of the decree, he was much distressed. And he set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. And then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And then the king commanded. And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. We'll stop there. Isn't it interesting that the focus here is not even on Daniel? Daniel's the one about to be thrown and then is thrown into a den of lions. And yet in a situation that would make almost anyone tremble and fear, there is not a word said here about how Daniel was coping with this situation. Uh, Instead, the focus is almost completely on King Darius, I think this is partly because we're now in Daniel chapter 6, and so we've gotten to know Daniel. Uh, We've gotten to know how he stands before powerful kings, how he speaks with calmness and authority. We've seen him risk his life before. And so frankly, by this point, it seems that Daniel's courage and Daniel's calmness is is just assumed. Um, it, It doesn't even need to be stated. What a testimony 
to be the kind of man who lives with such strength and faithfulness that your courage and conviction in the face of danger can just be counted on. We should all long to have that kind of testimony. But even though the passage says little about how Daniel was coping with this circumstance, I I think we stand on solid ground when we say that Daniel's attitude and mindset is captured by these lines from the Puritan Richard Baxter. He said, Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. If life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. And if short, why should I be sad to welcome endless day? Isn't that great? That's that's the kind of poem that ought to be on the walls of our houses and stitched into our quilts and on our refrigerator magnets because this this is how faith speaks. And I think this is the example we've seen from Daniel throughout this book. But again, the focus in our passage is not on Daniel. It's on King Darius. He finds himself caught in the net that he himself constructed. Uh, He put himself in this bind by giving into flattery, making a rash and unwise decrees we talked about this morning. And so now, a man that he seems truly to care about, a man who has served him well, is about to face death. Darius checks with all his lawyers. Are we sure there's no way out of this? Is there there some loophole? Is there some way we can change this? Throughout the afternoon, he is pursuing every possible avenue. But the truth is, legally, there are no avenues that allow Daniel to live. And as his scheming officials remind him, this kind of law simply cannot be changed. And it begins to dawn on Darius that he has been bamboozled but there's nothing he can do about it now. And so he finally gives the order. Uh, The den of lions is a pit. Uh, Along with the opening at the top of the pit, uh, there was likely a subterranean entrance into the den as well. And so that would have actually been the mouth of the den, the the below-ground entrance. Uh, This is how the animals were brought into the den. Uh, The opening at the top allowed people to look in and allowed air to get to the animals. Uh, but that opening at the top was likely far too high for anyone to, to escape. And so Daniel is brought in uh, through the mouth of the den, likely that subterranean entrance. That entryway is sealed with a stone. And then following ancient custom, uh, clay was likely used to seal around the stone. And then the king used his signet ring to place his seal Upon that clay, and that certified that the sentence had been carried out. Uh, It had been verified by the king himself, and he also had some of his lords add their signet rings to to the clay seal. Uh, This was by the king's authority. At the end of the day, uh, if Daniel dies, the ultimate blame is going to be on the king himself. Uh, Unlike King Belshazzar in Daniel 5, King Darius is portrayed as a man with true affection for Daniel. And his predicament here has shadows that point to God himself. Uh, One commentator says, The king's law demands that Daniel be cast before the lions. But his heart, filled with love towards Daniel, demands that Daniel be saved. We may think here of another law and another love. 
When God the Father looks at you and looks at me, His justice demands that we be sentenced to eternal death. And yet His love compels Him to seek any way of salvation. King Darius could find no no way to resolve this conflict. Darius could not unravel this riddle. How could he still uphold the law and yet somehow spare Daniel? He couldn't. But our God, facing a similar question, had an answer. It was His plan from the beginning. In Jesus Christ, in Jesus' death on the cross, God found a way to uphold a fully, perfectly good law while at the same time sparing and rescuing the people that He loved. And so this dilemma that King Darius finds himself in is just one of several gospel shadows that we see here in Daniel 6. Now, let's look at Daniel's deliverance. Daniel's deliverance. So begin reading verse 19. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces." I don't know, do we always tell that part to our toddlers? <laughs> do we always include that in the, in the Sunday school lesson? Let's ask some basic questions. First, what, what do we have here? Uh, what we have is Almighty God delivering His servant, Daniel. Uh, this passage is just one of many in the Bible that explains why we call our God the Deliverer. The Psalms are full of this. Our, our God as deliverer is something that has always made God's people want to sing. It's one of the constant themes in the praise and worship of God's people. Psalm 34, 4, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Psalm 34, 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them. Out of all their troubles. Or listen to this great promise from Psalm 50 verse 15. God says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. I think it's significant that our God is presented to us as both a shield and a deliverer. As a shield, God often protects us and prevents us 
from experiencing certain dangers. But truthfully, most of the time, we don't see God's shield work. Uh, We're not even aware of a thousand unseen physical and spiritual dangers that God shields us from every day. But sometimes, God ceases His shield work and allows us to fall into a particular predicament, into a particular trial, into a particular trouble. And He does this so that He can show that He's not just our shield, but He is also an able deliverer who is both with his people in their troubles and able to bring, their, bring his people out of their troubles. Second uh, Peter 2, verse 9, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Uh, the fact that God is a deliverer undergirds a lot of David's prayers when he is in distress. Uh, he often calls on God to rescue him and to help him. Psalm 40, verse 13, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Or Psalm 40, verse 17, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Or one last verse that sticks out in my mind is Psalm 34, 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Already we have seen God rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace through the angel of the Lord. And here again we see God deliver His servant Daniel through an angel who shuts the lion's mouths. That leads us to the how question, right? How did God deliver Daniel? Certainly, It was in part because God exercised authority over his creatures. Every lion is God's lion. Every lion obeys the will of the one who made it. Uh, These lions do not ultimately answer to King Darius. He he may be their earthly owner, but if you put him in that den, I doubt the lions are going to treat him any differently than anybody else. Um, Hungry lions treat kings and peasants the same. They treat them as lunch. But these lions answer to their creator. God has the power to calm these lions and to close their mouths. He he is God over man, but he is also God over beast. But in particular, we see that God did choose to use an angel to shut the mouths of these lions. Um, In my mind, I picture some kind of angelic Indiana Jones. Remember that scene in The Last Crusade where the lion's going after him? He's got his whip and he does that a few times. I don't know why I picture that, but that's what I picture. Uh, Daniel calls him God's angel. Uh, Probably another reference to the angel of the Lord. Most likely, as we've established before, a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this teaches us again that our Savior is with us. In all our troubles. We are not alone in our trials. We are not alone in our tribulations. Jesus is with us. But it also reminds us that God does use angels to care for his people. We saw it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. and We see it again here. Uh, So many in our culture, they scoff at this idea. Invisible beings working to protect God's people. Hebrews says, however, that they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. 
Angels are powerful creatures, and their power is being used for our sake. They serve God, but they serve God for our benefit. And frankly, who knows how many times and how many ways angels have acted for our welfare as children of the King. Maybe one of the reasons that we will have lots to praise God for when we get to heaven is that He will show us what we haven't seen here. How many times He was our shield or our deliverer through the work of angels. Let's ask the why question. Why did God deliver Daniel? Uh, We might be quick to say that this was God's way of honoring Daniel. This was God's way of rewarding Daniel for for being faithful, right? And, And there would be some truth to that. But I don't think this deliverance was first and foremost for Daniel's sake. Remember, if God had not intervened, Daniel would have experienced a difficult death, a painful death, but then he would have entered into heaven itself, right? Uh, He would have come into the very presence of the good and glorious God that he served. If we look at the text carefully and we remember the context I think there is good reason to believe that the primary reason that God delivered Daniel was the glory of God's name. Everything God does is ultimately for his glory, to show his attributes, to bring people to marvel at him. Surely this work of deliverance was no different. Because we see in our text that King Darius approaches the den in the morning. He hasn't been able to sleep. Right, He's been fasting all night. And then he gets up at the sunrise and he he goes to the den and and he calls out to Daniel, just hoping against hope that somehow Daniel has survived. And and what does he say? What's the one question that Darius asks? Daniel, was your God able to deliver you? So whose glory is being put on the line here? Whose name is at stake here? Daniel, is your God able? And the answer is yes. Yes. Daniel's God is the God whom even the animals of the earth obey. Daniel's God was able. For Darius and his officials, and for the Babylonians as a nation, this was yet another moment when the God of Israel, the true God, was making known to them his power, his authority. In their pantheon of gods and goddesses, they had no deity that could match what Israel's God had just done. And then also don't forget the Jews that were living in Babylon. I'm not sure whether at this point Cyrus of Persia had yet given that declaration that the Jews could return to their homeland. I think probably by this point that he actually had done that, that the Jews were no longer being forced to stay in exile. They were now free to return to Jerusalem. Many of Daniel's kinsmen may have already returned to their homeland, but still many others had not done so. During those years of exile living in Babylon, their lives became intertwined in Babylon, and and maybe they they just weren't yet at a place where they can now leave, pick up everything, and go back home. And so what an encouragement to these Jews in Babylon. What an encouragement to hear that one of their own refused to submit to the king's evil edict, and God rescued him. Uh, Their God has shown himself to this Medan king, 
just as God has earlier shown himself to Babylonian kings. Sometimes I wonder if this deliverance wasn't as much about God encouraging Daniel's kinsmen throughout Babylon as it was about rescuing Daniel himself. Now, the aftermath of Daniel's deliverance was that King Darius took vengeance on those officials who had deceived him with their flattery. And we are told that he didn't just throw his officials to the lions, but I think we're often shocked to read that he also threw their family members, uh, their wives, their children, were fed to the lions. All of these people met their deaths in in a gruesome way. We're told that the lions did not spare them, but hungrily devoured them. This is not presented to us as something for us to rejoice in. It's not even presented to us as something that is fair and just. It's simply presented to us as, this is what happened. This is what took place. And we actually know from history that this was a Persian custom. Uh, We know this from several documents of ancient history that report the deaths not only of lawbreakers, but of those lawbreakers' entire families. For example, one of those Persian documents says, Some laws are abominable through which, because of the crime of one person, all his relatives are then put to death. So while it may not be what we agree with, it may not be something that is fair or just, it may not be appropriate, um, we could talk about that. But what we read here in Daniel does fit exactly with what we might expect from a king serving in the Persian Empire. I think this should be a reminder to us that our sins can reap consequences that affect our families. On the last day, we will certainly all be judged on the basis of our own depravity and our own sins. God, thankfully, is not going to bring against me the sins of of my father or my mother. God's not going to bring against me the sins of my friends or my children. Uh, No, Uh, other than my sinfulness in Adam... Right? The only things that will be brought against me are my own sin. And, and God knows there's plenty enough there. Right? There's, there's no shortage. But here and now, in this life, our sins do reap consequences that affect others. And especially those closest to us. The decisions we make for good or ill have implications for lives and even the souls of those that we love. If you want a good reason to pursue holiness with all your might, if you want a good reason to flee sin with everything that you can, let this reason suffice. This should be more than enough reason to motivate us. As we look into the eyes of our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, as we look into the eyes of our dearest friends and companions, would we want to bring harm to them? Would we want to make choices that imperil their souls or make their lives more difficult or or lead them in a wrong direction, set them a bad example that will ultimately hurt them? Our sins make messes. And the sad truth is, it is often those around us who are left picking up the pieces of those messes. Now, before we move on, let's make sure that we draw attention to the parallels between Daniel and and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, when you read uh, the, the sermons of the early church fathers, uh, they all saw Jesus all over Daniel 6. And you can see it if you think about it, right? Here is a man being sentenced to death, 
though he's guilty of no sin. Uh, This came about because of leaders who were jealous of him and conspired to bring about his destruction. Daniel is placed into the ground. He is given over to what most saw as certain death, and the den is even sealed with a stone. Yet the next morning, the stone is rolled away, and miraculously, Daniel is alive, and he comes up out of the pit as though one has risen from the dead. And in the end, his God is honored, and those who stood against him feel the wrath of the king. And so you see the comparisons with Jesus. Jesus was conspired against. Jesus was sentenced to death, though he was guilty of no sin. Jesus was crucified and then put into a tomb sealed with a stone. That stone was rolled away. He was alive, having triumphed over death. And indeed, at the very end of the story, all those who opposed Christ and his Father will find themselves given over to eternal death and destruction. And so you can see how people see in Daniel a shadow of our Lord Jesus Christ. One more point. How did Daniel come to be delivered? Hebrews 11.33 tells us that it was through faith that Daniel stopped the mouths of the lions. Yes, the angel stopped the lions' mouths, but it was Daniel's faith that fetched the angel. In the same way, how do we come to be delivered by God? How do we come to be saved so that all that Christ did in His life, death, and resurrection truly applies to us, rescues us from hell, guarantees us heaven? How can I have the cure for my cancerous sin truly applied so that I will be eternally well with Jesus Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. The answer in Daniel's predicament is the same for us in our predicament. I must have faith. I must trust the Lord Jesus Christ and trust myself to Him, believe that He is the Son of God, the Lord, the King over all the earth. It is resting in Christ as Savior that brings about salvation. And so we are reading about Daniel as a man of faith. And I simply ask, is a heart of faith beating in your chest? Is is that what's happening within you? You're entrusting yourself to God. I am going to stand and do what's right no matter what because I trust my God and He's going to take care of me. And maybe it means He stops the lion's mouth or maybe it means I die and go to heaven. But either way, He's taking care of me. And so I'm going to trust Him and do what's right. Finally, Darius's decree. Darius's decree. Uh, this is verses 25 through 28. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. Enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. How many times have we now seen this same theme in the book of Daniel? 
When people come to their senses and grasp reality, they realize that no earthly kingdom compares with God's kingdom. Earthly kingdoms are temporary. God's kingdom is going to last forever. Earthly kingdoms can be destroyed. God's kingdom can never, ever be destroyed. Moreover, people put their trust in all kinds of gods. But there is only one God who is a living God. A real, personal, active, living God. A God with no beginning. A God with no end. A God who simply is. At all times, in all places, He is. He alone delivers and rescues and works signs and wonders. Uh, The question we must ask is this one. Who and whose kingdom has our highest allegiance? Is there any person or thing that has more of our love and allegiance and devotion than God Himself? And is there any kingdom that we are more committed to and more identify with than the kingdom of God. We can love these United States of America. Indeed, there, there is a proper kind of patriotism, but it must always give way to our higher love, the love of that one kingdom that God has been building ever since the fall of man, the kingdom of Christ where Jesus is on the throne. Yes, let, let, let Trump lead us in making America great again. But we don't ultimately live and exist for the greatness of America. As he and we are making America great again, our highest ambition ought to be to make the name of Jesus great in this world. It is this kingdom that will find its home on this earth made new after the day of judgment. Right now, this kingdom of Christ is scattered. Many citizens of the kingdom of Christ are already in heaven. Many other citizens of the kingdom of Christ are walking on the earth. There's the church victorious in heaven. There's the church militant here on earth. But one day, heaven and earth will come together. This will be heaven. Christ will be here. And the kingdom of God will be our true citizenship and our true home and our true delight forever and ever. If you are a lover and follower of Jesus, this is what is ahead for us. And if there's one theme that just pervades the book of Daniel, it's this theme of the kingdom of God and how glorious it is compared to all the pale comparisons of the earthly kingdoms of this world. All right, so we're done with the first half of the book of Daniel. Uh, We are finished with the historical section of the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is 12 chapters long. The first six are history, telling the story of Daniel. It's why the the chapter six ended with that last line, right? It kind of that that last line about Daniel. um, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Okay, so that's that's sort of the end of the history section. Chapters 7 through 12 of Daniel are very different. (laughs) They are apocalyptic literature. They're much more akin to the book of Revelation. Indeed, the visions that John has in Revelation draw heavily from these latter chapters of the book of Daniel. 
Um, Lord willing, we as a church may eventually come back to Daniel and study chapters 7 through 12. That's not my intention right now. Uh, My goal in coming to the book of Daniel was for us to see the example of courage and faithfulness in Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in these chapters, praying that God would root in us a calm assurance in His sovereignty that would help us to be courageous in whatever God has in store for us in the days ahead. Uh, Pastor Merle and I have been talking, maybe when he's done with Hebrews in Sunday school, uh, in the adult class, he may choose to tackle uh, these latter chapters of Daniel. We're not sure yet, but at some point, Lord willing, we may come back to it. But next week, we're going to return to our main studies that we diverted from. Uh, Exodus in the Old Testament, Romans in the New Testament. Uh, Next week, we will be back in Exodus. Remember, Israel just crossed the Red Sea. When we left them, they were rejoicing. When we left them, they were worshiping. And then we're going to come together next Sunday morning, and already they're complaining. Okay, So we will will be there next Sunday picking up with, with Israel in the wilderness. Um, The next two Sunday nights, we have our fellowship next Sunday night, and then we have our members meeting. But after those two weeks, we're going to come back to Romans on Sunday nights and look at Romans chapter 11. Uh, Romans chapter 11 is a controversial chapter, um, but it's also a very glorious chapter. It is definitely a chapter that, that causes our view of God to grow more massive. And so we will be studying uh, Romans 11 on Sunday nights, beginning in a couple of weeks. Exodus in the morning. Romans 11 at night. We're going to keep doing that. We'll finish Romans 11 uh, going into early summer, right about the time that God hands down the Ten Commandments. And so, Lord willing, when we get there, we're going to take both Sunday mornings and evenings and devote our time to the Ten Commandments, one of the most important passages in the whole Bible, um, law, but also grace and glorious. And so I'm looking forward to, to those Sundays together.